Hello you, it's me, Graham Norton here, live from Turin. Thank you for listening to my Virgin Radio podcast with Waitrose. I hope you're ready to celebrate post-Eurovision because I've got lots in store for you. Screenwriter and playwright Abby Morgan joins me to chat all about her new book, This Is Not a Pity Memoir. The delightful Joanna Scanlon spills the beans on her gritty new Welsh thriller, The Light in the Hall. Writer and host of How to Fail podcast, Elizabeth Day has us on central hooks on the paperback version of her thriller Magpie. Broadcaster Sarah Cox is now a novelist. She's here to chat about her debut novel, Throne. The checkout challenge got another spin. Let's see who got lucky. And as always, Martha Collison has some tasty Italian treats up her sleeve. That's all to squeeze in, but first, let's catch up with Maria and solve some more of your Graham's Guide dilemmas. Hello, Buongiorno, buongiorno, Turin. These are the points from the United Kingdom. Oh, are you still in Exeter? (laughs) Yes, I am still in Exeter. I'm talking to you from my cell. I mean, my hotel room (laughs) in Exeter. I currently have um, suffering from Stockholm Syndrome, and now I must follow film crews all around the world. What are you filming? Is it the remake of Lord of the Rings? What are you doing for so long in Exeter? I am not allowed to tell you, Graham. I am really... (laughs) I don't know. I think I don't know. It's my life story. That's what I'm filming, my life story. Tell me about... As an eccentric... I just want to know, has an eccentric fan told you you are filming something and actually (laughs) you're just living in his house now and you think you're making a film? Get out of my life, Graham. How do you know? (laughs) Um, Turin, thanks for asking, is, uh, well, I don't know what Turin's like. I have, I have drove through it. Uh, as we, we drove from the airport and we drove into Turin, I was going, oh, this is lovely. Oh, this is very nice. Oh, I like this a lot. This isn't so nice. Oh, this is a bit grim. Oh, this is awful. Oh, this is where we're staying. So uh, that's where we are. <laughs> oh, the journey through life. I like that. Now, I have questions, Graham. Um, have the oh, please ask the- them. Uh, MC Hammer trousers, have they been eliminated? Because I like the MC Hammer trousers. Do you know who they were? No. Do you mean Do you mean the uh, big band, the Rasmus, representing Finland? The one with the balloons? Yes, I liked that. Are they still in? Yes, he's got a very low leather crotch. Is that the one? Oh. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I asked about that, Graham, but thank you for the information. No, MC Hammer trousers. MC Hammer trousers. Is yeah, that, is that who crotch. you mean? Yes, yes, yeah. I think so. Um, then um, they are in the grand final. They are in the grand final, and they're the only rock track left. There were f- because of Maniskin last year, there were a few rock tracks in the semifinals, and Eurovision said, no, thank you very much. So now we have so, I mean, not to... Quite a few Go on, tell me, spill. Well, just quite a few dirgy ballads, uh, and there's a big... There is a block in the middle of the show, and I wouldn't suggest anyone do this, but you really could repaint the back bedroom or, <laughs> or, 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 or change the tires on your car. Uh, Can you give us an approximation of the timing, please? <laughs> no, I, I can't because we want people to watch. But And, um, and the, the, the show has an amazing start. There's a, there's a block of about uh, five or six songs at the beginning that are brilliant. And okay. then uh, towards the end, there's another rush of great songs, including Our Boy. Ooh, I'm so excited for Sam Ryder because actually, bizarrely, he's, I've been into the bookies, Graham, and he's doing very well. He's one of the front runners. 
Yeah, he's up there with uh, Ukraine, Italy, and Spain. And I think Sweden are doing very well as well. But, you know, the bookies, schmuckies, sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. The good thing is, last night in the performance they do for the juries, he absolutely smashed it. And the crowd do love him, and they all know the song, they sing along with the song. And you could see, because it was the first time he'd done it with an audience, because he's he's done rehearsals, but he hasn't done the semifinals or anything. So it was the first time he sang the song to a huge stadium full of people. And, and they loved that, it. I mean, I really felt for him. It must have been gorgeous. It really must have oh. been an amazing feeling. And I have to just mention Norway, because I love this lyric. Not sure I told you, but I really like your teeth. That hairy coat of yours with nothing underneath. Not sure you have a name, so I will call you Keith. Now, as lyric writing goes, Graham, that's up there with you and I. It really is. I mean, that is your uh, subwoofer. Is it subwoofer they're called? Uh, yes, Norway. Um, are they up there in the in the kind of possibilities? Because it's quite a, a niche Eurovision song. We like a crazy ballad. I mean, a crazy sort of Eurovision song, don't we? Yes. I mean, what's good, I mean, I think there's a lot of UK entries that will think, I wish we'd thought of that, wearing masks and performing anonymously. But, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> so... I think they will do, they'll do, they will do well because people, it, it, and also it's, you know, it's a good dance track. There's low, actually, there are loads of good songs in the contest uh, uh, this year. And individually, they're all good. It's just like I say, the running order is a bit odd in, in the middle. Right, it's a bit right. Bit. Now, I can tell I you, ask, you mentioned Finland. Yes. Oh, one, yeah. one more question quickly. Oh, no, go on, and then you tell me. Um, I just want to ask about Ukraine, the Kalush Orchestra. Now, obviously, I feel they've already won Ukraine just by the sort of hearts and minds of the rest of the world. But will the song and the performance, um, you know, tip it for them, do you think? It's hard to know. I must say, the crowd last night didn't go as crazy for them as I was expecting. But that isn't the televoters. So, and also it's not the juries. You don't know, you know, and it's a combination, is it? It's hearts and minds. But it's also, a, it is a very good Eurovision song and it's well staged. So they'll, if they don't win, they are going to be top five, definitely. Virgin Radio. Do have a letter, my dear. Yes, I do, and I will read it forthwith. Dear Graham and Maria, I'm in a book club and have been loving getting into reading, whether it's downloading my books to read on my Kindle and then investing in purchasing physical copies when I want one for my shelves. The problem is I've lent a few books out to various friends, two in particular who, when asked to return them, have told me that they don't have them. I'm absolutely sure they do, but how do I broach the subject without seeming A, overdramatic, or B, missing out on getting my books back? I would welcome any advice, and that is from Leah in Perth, Western Australia. Welcome, Leah in Perth, Western Australia. Well, you see, Leah, there's a book rule, you see. You do not lend books unless you don't need them back, because basically when you do that, when you lend somebody a book, it's a lovely little gift. Because 
what you do if you want to keep the book is you make strong recommendations that friends buy the book. Because if you want to keep it, it's books just disappear. It's like socks in the tumble dryer. They just go missing. So I would just say to you, Leah, in Perth, Western Australia, you have to put this one down to experience and just let the books go. They are free. Fly, be free books. You are now out in the universe. It's really not worth making a scene but what you have learned is that it's just not worth lending things if you feel very strongly about them. A recommendation is enough, but keep the actual books on your shelves. What do you think, Graham? Well, you are right, but it is wildly annoying. You kind of think, wait a minute, I gave you that book, and you know, and what, what did you do with it? You know, did you leave it sort of in a cafe, on a bus, or is it just on a shelf in your house, but you can't be bothered to go and look at it because there's six books and, well, it could be any of them. I, I, can't, I can't look through them. Um, so, I, I, Leah in Perth, I, I, I'm afraid Maria is right. Unless you want to be some, like some sort of book harridan banging on the door, giving, give me back Jilly Cooper, she must be freed. <laughs> uh, don't just just give it up and put it knock it down to experience. And I think, am I right? I know in South Africa books are weirdly expensive. I think maybe in Australia books are weirdly expensive as well. So you know, because people in the UK might be thinking, oh, you know, are these very expensive hardbacks, or whatever. But I think even paperbacks in, in Australia are quite spendy. So uh, you know, it, it's not it's it's not unreasonable to want your book back or to think yeah. that someone should take care of something they borrowed, but. Uh, you know, once bitten, twice shy, I would say, Leah, stop. You just stop now. No more lending. And as Maria says, you just recommend. And, I mean, Graham, I would say, that. I would say, Graham, if you've spent 15 quid approximately on a hardback, whatever the terminology, whatever the translation of finance is in Australia, then, you know, that's quite a significant amount. And you do expect somebody to return. But sometimes you lend people books and you know full well that they won't read them. So, you know, if it's somebody who's really into books and in, in your book group, then it's a reasonable thing, I think, to lend somebody in the book group because then you see them every two weeks or however often you meet. And then it's harder for people to say no. But if you lend somebody a book and you never see them hardly, then I think you kiss goodbye to it. In the book group, I think there's a different ruling that operates, but Leah clearly hasn't been... Um, sort of dogmatic enough about when she wants her books back and they must be read. So I would say exactly what you said, Graham. It's just, it's an expensive hobby to lend books out, frankly. Yes, but isn't it interesting? I mean, I wonder, so Leah obviously never talked to these people about the contents of these books. She just went straight in for that kind of my book back and they went, don't know what you're talking about. I mean, it is, they don't sound like the best people in the world <laughs> where they kind of went oh wow you did let me that i wonder where it is you know at least pretend you've lost it rather than going no no don't have it <laughs> harry potter no never read it wouldn't bother <laughs> yeah oh someone broke into our house and they just stole two things your books uh, <laughs> i think the virgin radio uh, listeners will know well, and actually, it's not just books. It's anything, really. It's it's garden equipment. It's, uh, you know, it's it's you lend someone extra glasses or chairs for a party. You know, all that sort of stuff. So much of it, people are quite happy to ask for things. And then, weirdly, 
seem very content just to never give them back. It is the oddest thing in the world. You seem um, to be so speaking sure from experience been... here. Well, I'm also, as I'm speaking, I'm thinking, what a hypocrite, because I'm thinking there are things in my house that I've borrowed. <laughs> I've never given <laughs> back, <laughs> including books. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was hoping you wouldn't bring that up. Oh, sorry. <laughs> you were leading but, me down the but, garden but yes. path there. Yeah, so I am. I am I am also one of those awful people. Uh, but you're quite right. The listeners will know. My favourite responders today will be getting, a courtesy of a Waitrose, a delicious bottle of Italian Pinot Grigio. Yes, Cologne, northeastern Italy. And uh, that'll be going to my favourite responders. Okay, uh, Joe in Estepona in Spain. Hello, Joe. My mom is quite particular about lending books out. She always says, I'll have that back when you've read it. She also writes her name in the front. Make it clear that you want the book back. But if it's one that means a lot to you, don't lend it out in the first place. I think that's really the key thing. Uh, you have shared something you've got such pleasure from, and hopefully that gift will be passed on from your friend to others who are less able to afford new charity shop, etc. You are fortunate to have the ability to buy new, so enjoy the reading and feel good about passing that joy on. Carol from Long Eaton. A nice kind of gift of Gaia, slightly hippie-ish advice there from Carol. Thank you. Uh, Caroline in Whiteley. I belong to a book club, but we do return books to each other as we are decent people. Okay, Caroline. Uh, the poor booklist lady in Australia needs to invest in a personal library set with date stamp and library cards. Wow. Or she could just tell people she doesn't lend books out as she never gets them back. Uh, Leah is never getting these books back. She needs to forget them and never lend other books she really wants to keep. Maybe she should ask her friend what books she can borrow from them and then quietly never give those books back. Very fair, Pete and Bristol. And Sarah Sheffield, go around their house for dinner, check all the shelves and take the book back if you find it. I've done this. You know what, Sarah? Well done you. I'm sending you a bottle of wine for your honesty, your brutal honesty. Graham's Hey, Maria. Uh, have you got another, whatever the Italian letter is? Yes, that makes a nice change from the German to go Italian. Um, but here we are. Ah. It's quite a long one. Dear Graham okay. and Maria, just before Christmas, my fit, active mum passed away suddenly after a short illness. My dad, sister and I were devastated. I found it even more difficult to deal with because I don't live in the UK. And due to COVID, I hadn't seen her since February 2019, despite regular phone and Zoom calls. Dad is also completely bereft. He's now desperately lonely as they seldom spent a night apart in their 50 years of marriage. He's very sociable and is keeping himself busy, but is in the situation that Esther Ranson described so accurately. accurately. He has plenty of people to do something with, but no one to do nothing with. In our weekly phone call, he asked me what I thought of his asking three female friends, two widows and a divorcee, to go on holiday with him. He assured me that they would have separate rooms and that there are no other men around so he wouldn't be causing any trouble. I don't think there are any romantic ideas about these women as they are friends, and I don't even know whether they'd really be interested in having any other relationship with my dad other than friendship. He's lonely and what he wants is to be looked after, like his mother and my mum had done for his entire life. I have my life here and my sister has her life and family, so we have no intention of becoming his life companion. But I can't even think about another woman taking the place of mum. And I'm also afraid in case any clumsy approaches towards these other women will end up with him being hurt. He wants my answer about taking these women on holiday, and I don't really know what to say to him. I don't want my being upset about Mum's death to affect his chances of being less lonely, but on the other hand, 
I think he just wants to be looked after because that's what he's used to. Please help. And that is from Andrea in Italy. Well, firstly, Andrea in Italy, I'm very sorry about your mum. And you must understand and appreciate, Andrea, that you are in grief too. So you're right. Any decision you make about this to inform your dad what he should do is going to be affected by that. But you must try and put that to one side. Your dad, Andrea, is a grown-up. Yes, he's grieving, of course, as are you, but you he must be allowed to have his own agency. I mean, yes, go on holiday with others. Life is short, as you have sadly recently found out. So he's learning, he's relearning how to live and to live alone. So this is a difficult one for him. He sounds like he's a very sociable chap. So I would suggest, I mean, it seems like overkill to take three ladies on holiday with him, but maybe they're in a friendship group. I would suggest he joins some social groups where he lives and clubs. Um, and then there may be others who will be looking for companionship and people of his own age. And, you know, it, it that sort of loss, the loss of a partner after such a long time, people bond very quickly if they have been in the same position. And I feel sure that your dad will, in the fullness of time, find somebody to, as you say, do nothing with, which is the, it's a very good phrase. So, Andrea, I would just say, let him do what he wants to do. Don't try and micromanage. Try and put your own feelings of grief about your mum. She will never be replaced, ever. So try and think. Be in his shoes momentarily, I would say. Graham, what do you yeah. think? I just, well, I just feel for Andrea because she's obviously a lovely woman and she's going through everything. She's, she's feeling everything right now. She's feeling the grief. She's feeling the guilt and regret about not being with her mother more. Uh, she's feeling for her father being lonely, but equally she's acknowledging that she doesn't want him to move on. It's, it's a horrible situation. But I think Maria's right. You've got to separate your grief from what your father's doing. And I think all you can say, and again, these are adults. So I think what you should say is, look, of course, Dad, go on holiday with these women, or at least ask them to go on holiday, because they're, as I say, they're adults. They will say no if they don't want to go. Um, but I don't think you're out of line to say, look, don't make a fool of yourself. Don't embarrass yourself on this holiday. Um, and then leave it at that. And whatever happens, happens. Your mom has, has lived her life. Her story is complete. Your father's story is now continuing. And there may well be somebody else as part of that story. And they're not replacing your mother because your mother's gone. Um, and it's very hard to come to terms with that. But you you must, because you don't want to lose a relationship with your father. That's the last thing that should happen in, in, in the aftermath of your mother's death. So uh, I, I just think you have to give him your blessing and a bit of a warning. That's all I think. Yeah, that's made me feel a little bit teary, Graham, your words, because I, they're absolutely right. And... You know where you say, don't tell him not to make a fool of himself. I mean, I'm sure your dad is fully aware and he has assured you that these are not romantic relationships. These are friendships. And he doesn't want to make a fool of himself. I think when you go on holiday, the, the, the normal rules change and everyone's a little giddier and they will all get on well. The very fact that there will be four of them if they all decide to go is a good thing because there will be female friendships and male to female friendships and so on. And so uh, the likelihood of him trying to make a pass, I think, is very slim, unless these three ladies yeah. all line up like <laughs> yeah. you know, Miss World contestants <laughs> and, you know, put on a show of a different outfit every day. <laughs> 
Yeah, cut to a, cut to a jug of sangria. And they're fighting over him. This, I'm sure people have advice for uh, Andrea. Alex is in Wells. Oh, by the way, my favorite responders will get a bottle of Pinot Grigio uh, Italian wine, courtesy of Waitress. Thank you very much. Uh, Alex and Wells, as a widow, I appreciate you are grieving, but your dad's life is his own, and it sounds like he's taking his grief and loneliness in a very healthy way. Let him get on with it. Um, even make mistakes. You never forget or move on from your, lo- your love. You don't replace them, but life does go on. And I think that has to be true, Alex. You know, you don't replace these people, but you can't, you, you can't stop living because they have. Simon and Epsom. Please suggest to Andrea to look up Age UK or Age Concern online. Okay. There is likely to be a local branch near to her father, and they offer a range of befriending clubs and groups as well as grief support. Hopefully this will provide a way for Andrea's dad to ease his loneliness. Cleos and Rochford. Andrea, I'm sorry for your loss. Your dad may do irrational things in the first waves of grief, but the fact he's trying to do anything positive is fantastic. Please support and love him and just be there for each other without judgment. And that's what I was saying. You don't want to lose him as well. You don't want to fall out with him about these things. Um, Jane in Hove says, I couldn't tell whether he was offering to pay for the holiday for all the women. Hopefully not. He could safely do something like a coach outing. It takes time to create friendships where you do nothing. He needs to be patient and choose a variety of ways. Night classes, U3A class, weekend coach outing, the sort of things where he meets different people and eventually new friends who also want to do no more than sit in the garden with a cup of sometimes. And Angela in Edgeware says, I think your dad is lonely and he is grieving. I understand your fears he may get hurt, but you need to let him find his own path. I know you miss your father, but you cannot let him live the rest of his life without some love or friendship. He may become a very lonely and sad person, which you would not want. You may find he does find someone who you will feel relieved he has found companionship, and you may find you worry less and can concentrate on your own feelings and grief. All good advice. Thank you so much to everyone who got in touch. Um, I am going to give I'm going to, I'm going to give the wine to Simon and Epsom for your practical advice and reminding us about Age UK and Age Concern and the services they provide. Thank you for that. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to meet my first guest of the day, a BAFTA and Emmy Award winning playwright and screenwriter. Her credits include Iron Lady, Suffragette, Sex Traffic, The Hour, Brick Lane, Shame. Her latest offering is the big hit, The Split, uh, doing fabulous business for the BBC. She's now brought out a book. Uh, This is not a pity memoir. Her name is Abby Morgan. Good morning, Abby. Morning, Graham. Thanks for having me. Listen, I'm thrilled. I'm well thrilled to talk to you anyway. But particularly uh, after looking at this book, it's an extraordinary thing. What fascinates me is, as a writer, writers are used to kind of cannibalizing their own life, I suppose, to some extent. Why this story? Did you decide to go? This is me. I'm not going to fictionalize this. I'm not going to use bits of this story in a drama. I want people to know it's my story. Yeah, I mean, I think writing has always been an act of sanity for me. Um, And so it just pulled out of me, really. I mean, I wrote it against the backdrop of shooting the second series of The Split and going into the third series. So I very much was sort of pouring one side of my life into that. But I just I just couldn't I couldn't contain this story. And I think, you know, I see everything through the prism of a screenwriter. And even I could see that my actual day to day living life had brilliant plot twists and extraordinary moments. So it just felt ripe, a ripe for a memoir, I guess. 
And in terms of, well, I guess we should explain uh, to the listeners what the memoir is about. Uh, so yeah. to, to, to tell us, how, how, do you, how do you briefly explain what is well, contained I mean, within these covers? In June 2018, my partner of 18 years collapsed with a brain tumour and so infused um, uh, sort of two, three years of absolute chaos. But actually, he ended up going into a coma for six months and uh, and it was pretty life and death through that. And when he came out of that coma... Um, the thing that happened that I saw in movies the whole time actually happened to us, which is he woke up remembering everybody except me. Um, and so the book really is about my relationship with Jacob, that's my partner's name, and uh, sort of having to reflect on our 18 years together whilst also trying to reconnect with him in the present and uh, trying to show him that I was someone he knew and I was a friend and that I loved him. And it's a, it's a, it's a memoir about love, it's about family, it's about my own health, um, challenges which I had in the middle of it um, and it's about raising two teenagers and it's about it's about when someone loses themselves and how you find yourself in helping them find themselves I guess. And what struck me is it's just it's so intimate you know there's bits where you kind of you're almost reading through your fingers kind of going oh I'm, I'm not sure I should be privy to this. Um, what did you kind of forget that someone was going to read this at some point were you just writing it for yourself? Slowly dawning on me now. Now I'm actually on the road with the book. It definitely makes me. Oh my! I mean, it's a little bit like that feeling you know when you've got drunk and the next day you think, "Oh my gosh, what did I say?" <laughs> so I'm definitely going back over, going, "Why the hell?" Um, but actually, I, you know, I, I've tried to be. I guess I wanted to expose the experience in in all its all its beauty, all its terror all its horror, all its um, love. And, uh, and I, I think it is, a, you know, I think it is a collision. It's definitely, a, it's got an element of stream of consciousness, but also it's about me trying to make sense of narrative. You know, I spend my whole time almost doing a kind of literal, literary Sudoku really. And, and, and in a way, when I was faced with this huge puzzle of my life, I, I guess I, I didn't want to leave any, any tone, uh, stone unturned. So it, it became a way for me to stay sane. I was writing it at night when my kids were in bed. And, uh, and, but it's very odd going out on the road now with it because I'm so used to having this incredible ensemble of actors and directors and, and you know, the, the thing to hide behind. And it's just me in the book. So, you know, I'm certainly sitting there going, mm, okay, brace yourself. Um, but I hope it's what I hope is it's honest, but I also hope it, it's I hope it's people will laugh. I hope people will recognize themselves. But I, I try not to spare mainly myself, I guess. Yes, no, I have to say you when you say this is not a pity memoir. Well, actually, that, that's a very sweet bit. You actually you met your husband through a pity memoir. Yeah, I mean, I when we first met, I met him at a dinner party and I was desperately trying to get the rights to a beautiful memoir written by uh uh, Ruth Piketty called Before I Say Goodbye, which was a series of emails and articles she'd written in The Observer as she died of cancer. And I sat up of quite a drunk woman and she, as she got more drunk, this rather handsome Shakespearean bearded man sat in front of me and kept on defending me as she kind of really didn't like pity memoirs, as she called them. And so the, the, the kind of story of our first meeting is really also embedded in the title. Oh, which is lovely. And so... As I say, you're you're you are you know you aren't self pitying. You are very harsh on yourself in, in the book. But I suppose the big thing is this isn't just your story. It is Jacob's story, and, and your children are in the book as as well. Did yeah. you show it to them as you went along, or did yes. you just go, "Mommy's paying bills. Shut up." <laughs> yeah, this is this is how I'm paying for your fees. Um, <laughs> I, I, mean, you know, I, I think I. 
they were my first readers, definitely. So I, I wrote, I wrote I, each chapter I gave to my sister who works with me. So she read each chapter and kind of went, okay, keep going, keep going. And then when it was finished, my children were the first to read it. And then, and then Jacob's family and, um, and then my family. I mean, the irony of this in many ways, the book is written for Jacob. It, I often talk to Jacob in the book, um, but the one person who hasn't read it yet is him. And actually, I think- Really? Yeah, he's not ready yet. I mean, he knows everything about it. He's been incredibly involved and really supportive of the book. But I think, you know, he's made an incredible recovery. Uh, you know, he's taken, you know, we're, we're nearly four years into the experience of post his, his brain seizure and his collapse. And he's making an incredible recovery at the moment, which we're all kind of overwhelmed by. Um, but I think to actually go back and relive that experience is really hard. He will read it, but he's just taking his time. But I absolutely wrote in many ways, he's my, he's my, he was my audience I had in my head, really, my reader I had in my head. And when your children read it and Jacob's family and things, did you take anything out after they? I definitely tweaked a little bit, but actually they were incredibly bold and brilliant. And I was really surprised. You know, I mean, I think teenagers get a, a bad rap and in many ways they're, they're way more progressive and open than I am. So I was just like quite blown away by how supportive they were. I mean, you know, I, I tried not to, to, to humiliate, embarrass them too much. And I think this is probably the worst part of it. You know, they've actually, you know, my face is now attached to the book, but, um, but actually they've been brilliant and supportive. I didn't really do that. No, I didn't actually. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think no one can go through this experience without, it's comedy and tragedy collides, you know, and of course you get moments and you think actually this is just too intimate. So there were certain things I didn't put in, but on the whole, I guess, you know, when I was Googling at late at night and I was desperately trying to find someone who was going through a similar experience, I, I, I kind of wanted to read a book like this. And, in, and I hope if anybody's gone through the kind of madness, insanity, you know, pain of, of, of intensive care. And, you know, we've just gone through this massive global pandemic. You know, people, we were incredibly fortunate. We were able to be with Jacob. There are families who weren't able to be with their families in hospital. But if you've ever cared for somebody who's been really sick and then gone through a long rehabilitation, you know, it's it's intense and it's lonely. And I, I hope this book will, people will recognize something, will, it will be a help. I hope it will, I hope they'll hear it. I hope it'll be of comfort of some kind and and it's meant to make you laugh and I think maybe it makes some people cry um I hope you enjoyed it Graham I didn't realize how many books I did, you did. It, it does it does but I think it does both of those things it makes you laugh great but also it is very kind of inspiring as to what a relationship can endure what a what battering a relationship can take and still survive it's it's it is really inspiring I had to hold on to the hum of love that, that Jacob had and I had for 18 years, you know, because, you know, I, 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 I came back a stranger to Jacob and he was a stranger to me and we've had to get to know each other again and he's had to, you know, refine his life. So I guess I didn't, I didn't set out to write a love story. And uh, as we keep saying to everybody who buys the book, flip the flap, because under the cover, there's a little tribute to actually what, what, what we all discovered it is, which is it's a love story. And I didn't set up to write that because, you know, we're, we're a very normal marriage, you know, we're a very normal relationship in many ways. We have our highs and lows, but I, out of it, I, I discovered just how much I loved somebody, I guess. Yeah, it was a surprise to me too. I was thinking, Abby, for your children, like, I, I think normally even adult children don't really get to know that their what their parents who their parents are really till they die kind of that's when that's when your parents are revealed to you as human beings not just your parents so how amazing for your your children to get the opportunity to know what their parents are like and are going through when they're not in the room 
Well, that's such a nice thing to say. Thanks, Graham, because <laughs> I've definitely wrestled with it the last few days. Yeah, I mean, I think my kids are used to me pitching every idea at the table. You know, they tend to be my first audience, my first critics. They, you know, so so in a way, I actually pitched this idea to them. I mean, originally it was going to be a stage play. That was my plan. I was I had this whole mad idea that I was going to get Jake, Jake back on stage playing on the ukulele because he's a great ukulele player. And he's a, he was obsessed during his his recovery with friends. And I had this idea he was going to play, you know, the, the theme tune of friends to an audience. And I build a whole play around it. And then COVID happened. And so I kind of realized I needed another way of writing. So, you know, in a way they were brilliant because they kind of went, okay, okay, contain it in a book. So I'm really glad to hear you say that. It's a nice thought. I, lo- I hope I hope they'll feel like that. Yeah. Um, here's the thing. It it because as a as a screenwriter and as a playwright, it's it's completely collaborative. Everything you do, presumably you are talking to producers and directors and actors want to change things and everyone's chipping in and cutting things out and da 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 da. Did you prefer this this process where it was just Abby Morgan, there's no other names on the title of this thing, it's just you and it's precisely the way you wanted it? Or did you miss kind of fighting for your darlings or killing your darlings and all that sort of stuff? You know, it was very interesting because, you know, you're writing, you're on your own in a room. And I, I, I normally run to those pitch meetings and those editor, editing meetings because it's just great so, to be with people, you know, and I'm not often fit for human consumption. So to kind of get out there and put some clothes on and I love that part of it. But actually, I did love what I loved about prose writing was I loved I loved the length of time and the space of being left before all those voices, all those kind of editing notes came in because, you know, writing, particularly in screenwriting, I think general writing is rewriting, but in screenwriting, it's brutal. You know, you have to constantly rewrite continually, continually, continually. And you're adapting for actors because I think actors then become keepers of character and everybody's got to hold and make this thing. So they're also invested. But a book, there was a beauty to it. I mean, I, you know, you know that, you know, it's just something really beautiful about retreating and being able to sit, you know, for weeks on end and just, I mean, I wrote between like, probably like 11 at night till three. This is when I wrote that book, this book. And it kind of, it's one of the stillest part of the house. And I loved that. I, I always feel like I get twice as much work done at night. I think there's that slight competitive edge in me that everyone's sleeping. You know, that, you know, money where you sleep. I, I kind of get I'm ahead. Finally, I'm ahead, you know. So, um, yeah, so I, I, I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. But I've kind of, I think I've wrung my own life out now. So I think I'll go back to, a, I'll go back to fictional characters now. And having, you know, spent your time going, oh, that actor's so bad. Stop butchering my, <laughs> butchering my beautiful lines. Uh, presumably, have you done the audiobook for this? No, do you know, I didn't. And I tell you why, I come from a family of actors. <laughs> and as soon as they heard me do a chapter, they went, really? Um, but actually... <laughs> Honestly, I, it's, I know it's, I, it's, it's still very live, this experience, and I didn't want to imbue it with too much emotion. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I just find it quite difficult to read out loud, if that makes sense. So I just, so actually Fiona Button, who plays the wonderful Rose in um, The Split, has done the audiobook, and it's really great. I feel like I, I, love the, I love actors. I love the way they take your story and make them your own. And so I've really enjoyed that process of handing it over and hearing it through through the voice of someone else. That's so weird. I think that's weird. <laughs> because it's so you. It's totally you. Because like I say, in, in other things, you can pretend it's not you, but this is you. I know, I know. I do hear that. I do. I know, I, I really do hear that. I mean, I did wrestle with it, but actually, 
it's felt like the right thing. And, you know, I've, I, I did I did do a reading on a, a podcast recently. I could barely, I choked my way through the first, oh, I just lost it. And I just thought, oh, no, this is not going to work. You know, I just, I, I, I'm weirdly an emotional person, even though I'm quite kind of contained in my work. I um, I just felt like I needed someone else to do it. But, I mean, it's beautiful. She's done, she's done a beautiful job with it. So I'm, ex- I, I'm, I'm excited to see what other people hear. But who knows, you know, maybe one day I, I'll... I'll, I'll, if I ever write anything else and it does, I, I do just decide to dig into my life again. I may decide to do it myself. And very quickly, congratulations on your OBE. Hurrah for you. Well done. Thank you very much. That was, I know, that was funny. I, had, I, I, I went to pick that up while Jake was in a coma. So it's a very, I do look slightly bonkers, actually, as I pick it up. Because I think I was definitely in an altered state. But um, yeah, it was a lovely, lovely thing. And it's, you know, it's, it, was a, it was a very nice day to hang out with my mum and my kids. So yeah, it was fun. Well, listen, I think the reaction to this book is going to be extraordinary. This is not a pity memoir by Abby Morgan. It is out now in hardback. Thank you so much for joining us and talking about your book. And good luck with the rest of your um, promotions. And, uh, yes, don't do any readings. It'll also accept you. (laughs) Bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to meet my second guest of the day. You most recently saw her winning Best Leading Actress at the BAFTA Awards for her role in After Love. She now brings us a new psychological thriller. Easy to say. Uh, Coming to Welsh Language Channel 4, S4C, and BBC iPlayer tomorrow, that's May 15th, at 9, and then airing later in the autumn on Channel 4. It's called The Light in the Hall. She's called Joanna Scanlon, and she joins us now. Hello, Joanna. Hello. Hello, Graham. How are you? I am very well. So listen, before we, well, let's just go straight into it. So the light in the hall, just tell us who you play and the kind of background to the story. Well, I mean, you, you will have been familiar with all this sort of Scandi noir for the last uh, sort of phase of the last maybe 10 years or so. There's been an obsession with Scandi noir and there's simultaneously been a, a movement of what's called Celtic noir. So this is a really excitingly dramatic psychological story in which I play the mum of a, of a girl who was 15 when she was murdered. Uh, and that is 15 years ago. And her, the guy who was convicted of the murder is now being released from jail. And he has never said where her body is. Um, and the mum, Sharon, that I play, goes into a kind of passionate, determination to find out what happened to her daughter um, and puts herself really on the line in terms of the law herself. You know, she's she's not so perfect after all. And what struck me watching, you are, you are quickly, I think, becoming one of those actors who, you know, like people like Monica Dolan or Kristen Scott Thomas, you kind of think if they're in it, it's probably going to be good. And you choose really well. But watching this, I wondered, was it just the script or does somebody come to you and kind of go, what you've got to understand, Joanna, is it's going to look like this. There's going to be amazing, big Welsh skies and it's going to be lovely, long, lingering shots. Does someone describe all that to you? No, but I know there are wonderful big Welsh skies. <laughs> and I, I was incredibly drawn. You can't really film Wales without it looking absolutely resplendent. And we were filming in an area of Wales that I don't know very well because I come from North Wales. But the real drive for me was about learning the language and acting in Welsh. And that was like jumping off a cliff, really. Um, I had no idea whether I could do that. And it was a challenge that you can't really take a challenge like 
well, the gauntlet gets thrown down. And if you walk away from it, I think you're, I would feel like I'd let myself down. Um, because sometimes you've just got to fall flat on your face and fail and take the risk of that, at least. Let's hope you're not, I'm not inviting viewers to watch um, me um, make a, a double hash of it. <laughs> but um, that was That's the, fascinating. That was I'd know. So I had no idea. So what? So basically, we should explain that uh, a lot of the drama is in Welsh, and then other bits are are in English. And so, what was your conversational Welsh like before this? Pretty poor. Pretty poor. I mean, I've grown up around Welsh. Obviously, sung in Welsh. There's no one who gets away without singing in Welsh who lives in Wales. Uh, it's something that it was very familiar with. Obviously, the pronunciation wasn't something that I felt was a massive stretch, but the actual conversational Welsh was pretty tricky. And I'd done a show the previous year on S4C, the Welsh channel, which was about learning Welsh. And I'd had a fantastic teacher who helped. And Mark Lewis-Jones, the brilliant actor, came with me in a, um, and we went on a journey. And I did get to a certain level of conversational Welsh, although I mixed up the word ice with sex. The word for sex and the word for ice are very similar. So we did have a, a scene when doing, doing some role play that wasn't, didn't exactly go the right way. But I had got a level of conversational Welsh. And, but moving from that into acting in Welsh, completely different thing, really, because um, I realised I, when you act, you're obviously putting stress on particular words because that's what you're going to, that's how you're making your meaning. And then I found that, oh, if I, I don't know which word to stress. I could be stressing completely the wrong word. And in fact, I did stress completely the wrong word many times and had to be corrected. Um, but it was, you know, it was an, it, now I feel so much more confident. And um, the Welsh government has this drive to get a million Welsh speakers by, I think it is 2050. Um, and I feel like absolutely I'm going to be one of those. I'm going to be a learner who continues um, to learn and get to the point where I can have a proper chat. And what was it like on set, Joanna? You know, that you talk about actors staying in character. Did you guys stay in the Welsh language? Well, we were filming it in two versions, an English version and a Welsh version at the same time. So we were doing this process of switching between both languages, all the actors. Obviously, a lot of them are first language speakers in Welsh, and I was... Uh, learning Welsh, some other learners as well. So it was a funny mixture. And actually this bit of the brain that we call switch off, switch off, um, that you're going neurologically between one set and the other set was really hard for everybody. Um, but I, I, you know, I had an awful lot of help. The production companies that were invited me to do this were so good at making sure that at all times, there was somebody I could have a chat with and say, listen, am I doing this wrong? Or, you know, do I need to pronounce that word better than that word? Um, especially when you're doing something about, you know, a young girl's murder. You know, the, the intensity and the passion of it and the drama and the whodunit element and all of that needed to be... It looked, it, I needed to look like I knew, I knew what I was doing. So um, it was with a lot of help that that, that was made possible. And it struck me, Joanna, you know, because you were talking about Scandi Noir and we happily sit down and watch Scandi Noir or the French, those French ones or the Italian ones with, with subtitles. We're happy to do that. And yet I'm guilty of this too. But if it's Welsh or Irish and there's subtitles, 
I slightly go, oh no, I can't be bothered. What is that about? Why are we, why are we resistant uh, to that? Maybe it's familiarity, over familiarity, and the, and the and exoticism of, of 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 other languages. But for me, the game changer was Squid Game because when I watched, I don't know how many hours that was. It seems like a, a whole lifetime of watching it. Um, I found that sitting into something that was very dramatic and passionate, and was with subtitles. I know there was a dubbed version as well, but it, it meant that. I really got involved and I believed that you could just let that drop. You could let that sort of almost screen drop, go inside behind it and just be part of that whole world. And I think Welsh and Irish perhaps have a, a sense that we, uh, it's, it's very familiar and there's a, a certain amount of fear around, you know, as, a, as an English speaker, first language English speaker, taking that first step of saying, um, say thank you very much is really you feel like somebody might judge you for it and I think there's a certain sort of emotional response but I would encourage anybody to step beyond that moment of feeling a little bit nervy because on the other side there's a whole culture and environment which you will be very welcomed into. I mentioned it earlier, Joanna, but we've got to talk about it. Congratulations on winning the BAFTA Film Award Best Actress. Uh, what an amazing night. Uh, talk to us about that night. What, what were your expectations going in? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, uh, I, I, I've become incapable of speech remembering it because it was, I didn't expect <laughs> it. <laughs> I did not expect to win. Um, I didn't expect to be nominated. It, you know, it's not. It wasn't a journey that anybody planned. Um, and sitting there, the, the Royal Albert Hall, as anyone who, who's been there will remember, is huge. It's absolutely vast. And you're going out to the nation, and you know that this is something that everybody has their eye on as a you know a big night of the year. And sitting there, I couldn't. I. I I just couldn't imagine. I didn't prepare anything to say, and I couldn't imagine if I was asked to go up what I would say. So those few moments, you know, like maybe like a car crash or something really adrenal, a huge adrenaline moment in your life, which you recall later on with sort of very, very in slow-mo almost. It feels like that. I remember walking up the steps thinking, I must not trip on the dress main thing um and then getting there and of course i must not say how heavy the batter is <laughs> i must not, i must not <laughs> i must not bore the nation <laughs> it was so it was it was sort of out of body because you're there and you really feel it you know the joy of it it is a wonderful thing but at the same time you're very aware that um if you get it wrong or do something silly. It's there on the internet forever. <laughs> and, and what were the others like? Because obviously, you know, they'd flown all the way in. <laughs> you, know, you, you, you were an Uber right away. <laughs> so were they generous to you afterwards? Did they come up and grad- congratulate you, the other nominees? Oh, the funny thing about that is that um, my... Uh, so after the dinner, there's a, you know, there's the award ceremony at the Albert Hall and then there's a dinner and then there's a lot of after parties, these famous after parties. And as we were leaving the dinner, I turned to my husband and said, do you mind if we don't go to any after parties? I just, I just want to go home with you and have a cup of tea or actually to a hotel, which was nearer, that made that Uber journey a little bit closer still. And um, he said, yeah, fine. Yeah, let's go back to the hotel and have a, 
a cup of tea and a chat because there was a lot to talk through. And um, when we got back to the hotel, by accident, there was another tiny event, go, or seemingly tiny event, um, going off in another room, which, which actually had the other nominees in my category because it was the Critics' Choice Awards being broadcast back to the US. So there was uh, Lady Gaga and Amelia and uh, Alana and... Renata, they were all in the same room. The only people who were there, and it was tiny, it was just about 20 people in the room and us. Um, And so we ended up having a really nice chat and uh, they were very, very gracious. I felt like I needed to lay down prostrate in front of Lady Gaga because (laughs) she is a goddess, an utter goddess. And to have that kind of parity, I mean, it it still feels extremely strange to me. I feel like I need to apologize to her somewhere. <laughs> but it's just the best story. Your story is amazing because you didn't start professionally acting to what? You were in your mid, late 30s? Yeah, I was 35. I think the very first thing I did was I, it was either peak practice. I can't quite remember whether it was peak practice, an episode of that. Um, whether, I don't know whether any of your listeners remember it or it was, um, it was uh, a, a drama Jane Eyre which was with Samantha Morton. It was one of those two. That was the first thing I ever did on screen, the first professional job I had, and I was 35. And if somebody said to me now, at 35, I'm thinking of, you know, changing career to become an actor, I would probably say, well, yeah, good idea, but have a think about it too, because you might be giving up a really steady life <laughs> um, and, and lots of and lots of positives, you know, you, I, I can't make the knitting club every Tuesday because I don't know where I'm going to be. You know, there's lots of negatives to our peripatetic existence. But at the same time, it was the right timing for me, I think. And in my 20s, I'm not sure I would have worked very much anyway. I probably would have just sat at home and waited for the phone to ring. So it, I kind of caught up with myself. I mean, when I was a kid and I acted, I was always playing people who were 40. So I think I just caught up with myself and that happened at all at the same moment. And because we got to know you, you became sort of well-known in comedies. Did you always know there was, there was a great dramatic actress in me? Please, please <laughs> unleash her. Um, and and do, you think, do you think you can go back to comedy now that we've seen you in all these really gruelling roles? I don't know. I, that's, a funny, that's a funny thought, actually. Do you get, uh, do people suddenly see you differently and therefore they can't either take you seriously or look at you as something that is, funny I you know with the two worlds but I think really in the end it's just about playing a character and whether that turns out to be in a comedy or in a drama you just play the moment as the character and I think you just have to do that in the most honest way possible and having done that that will then allow an audience in I think. So what's next funny or sad (laughs) because those are the options. (laughs) (laughs) Funny um Funny with some sad later. But later in the year, some sad, but some funny right now. Um, yes. I mean, I, I do love playing comedy and all the technical requirements of comedy are hugely enjoyable, which is what I'm doing now. We're reading um, the Larkin second series and it's been massively good fun being back in that comedic zone. Oh, fantastic. We look forward to that, Joanna. And congratulations on The Light on, in the Hall, uh, which, as I say, starts tomorrow night on Channel S4C and iPlayer, coming to Channel 4 later in the autumn. Uh, good luck with everything you do. Joanna Scanlon, thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you so much, Graham. Still to come, we get into some literary treats from Sarah Cox and Elizabeth Day. But first, let's catch up with show chef Martha for some Eurovision-inspired treats. Mmm, the aroma, hey, hey. Here's Martha. And uh, what have you made for us today, Martha, in uh, in honour of Turin? Well, yes, an Italian treat. I'm not sure if they'd be convinced that the way I've cooked it is authentic, but it is uh, a frying pan pizza with some serrano ham and some pineapple salsa, just to be a little bit controversial. Okay. And who's that lurking in the background with a hey, napkin? Graham. Why? <laughs> <laughs> who's it's, that? It's gob for hire, Jane Middleman. <laughs> who's that with the pizza all over her face? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Graham, man. When I saw this in the kitchen, firstly, Martha made it from scratch. So she was doing all the dough and I was just like watching her going, whoa, what's going on? But I sort of disagree with you, Martha, because I think they would like the way you've cooked it because they like cooking pizzas flat and they stick them in an oven mm. like that. So I, I think it's quite a good way to cook pizza. So basically, it's in the frying pan, so the bottom's crispy, Graham. So you've got the crispiness of the base and it, it's actually risen in a really nice way. But I was really worried because Martha said, you like pineapple on pizza and I was like not really it's really bad and uh, actually it really works because she's made a little salsa of it and also she's got serrano ham yes serrano ham serrano ham on the top which is Spanish and it's really salty so that sort of cuts into the sweetness of the pineapple and it just merges really it's it's absolutely do you know what Graham you know me and me food And I usually like it because I'm, you know, I'm just like a massive gannet. But this is my favourite thing that Martha's ever done. It's just really nice. Wow. Yeah, honestly. High praise. I don't know. The chocolate cake was pretty good as well. Oh, thanks. Jane Millman's got an unofficial chart. It's like the top gear. (laughs) Who did did the fastest thing? You got a whiteboard in the other studio. Uh, right now, one. right now, the frying pan pizzas at the top of the lead. Uh, all right, let's let's go back to Martha. Thank you very much, Jane. Let's go back to Martha and find out how we make it. So we make the the dough from scratch. How do we do that? Yes. Um. So you need some strong bread flour, some instant yeast, some salt, and some olive oil, and that is it. So you should you might have it all in your cupboard, you know. So if you want to make this for this evening, get going now. <laughs> you want to make your dough, so just knead together all those ingredients with 325 millilitres of warm water. Now, I made my dough yesterday night and proved it overnight in the fridge, which is another really good thing to do if you don't want to eat pizza straight away because it gets lots of flavour as it does the overnight proof. So you can either stick it in the fridge for minimum 12 hours up to 24 or you can leave it to rise at room temperature for three hours so get it going for Eurovision this evening if you want it if you want it to be eating then and then once your dough is ready we are going to make a topping so instead of just using big chunks of fresh pineapple which you can do I think a lot of people don't like pineapple on pizza because they don't like the wetness or the kind of too much juice going on so I'm going to chop up the pineapple really finely stick it in a little saucepan with some chilli flakes and some brown sugar and just cook that for a couple of minutes until it gets a little bit jammy um, and it just means it's a bit more it's a bit more manageable the pineapple <laughs> it's not in huge okay, chunks yeah then you want to preheat a large frying pan. Make sure you've got one that the handle can go into the oven because we're going to start cooking it in the frying pan so it gets that really good burst of hot, of heat, of high heat um, because our ovens uh, will not get up to the temperature of a good pizza oven in an um, Italian restaurant or something like that. So we're going to put the hot pan on the hob 
put in our dough that's rolled out into a big circle and then we do our toppings whilst it's in the pan so you put your pizza sauce on then I've got some serrano ham some mozzarella cubes and then a little bit of that pineapple salsa you cook it until the base is looking lovely and golden brown and then you transfer it into a hot oven for the final five minutes keep an eye on it and once the cheese is bubbling and the ham is crispy then you want to get it out slice it up and serve it straight away Oh, I have to say, thank you so much for mentioning that it needs to be a pan with a handle that you go in the oven. There's <laughs> yes. nothing more annoying than when you're following a recipe <laughs> and it goes, put in the oven. It's like, no! <laughs> I've started it Molten in this. Molten plastic. I can't <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, that sounds delicious. And what a great party treat for tonight if people want to sit down on the sofa and mm-hmm. share some uh, pizza while they're watching the Eurovision. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. Time to meet my first guest of the day and she is one of my favourite people. Uh, she was my old colleague back at the old place. Uh, she's still there. She's on the telly presenting programme. She's written a memoir and now she is a lady novelist. Her new book, Throne, is out in Harback. Her name is Sarah Cox. Hello. Morning, Graham. How are you? I'm very well. All the better for talking to you. It's <laughs> so lovely so, uh, to be on. We were quite a big night last night. Did you go out celebrating after Eurovision? Because what a night. It was what a night. And I did go out a little bit. Uh, but I was saying to Maria earlier, I'm tired, but not hungover. It turns out you, you get older and wiser. That, that's what happens. So, uh, yes, I, I, I kept a lid. I kept a lid on the celebrations. <laughs> it took me 47 <laughs> years to finally be like, oh, no, that hurts. I'm not going to do that so much. Yes. Oh, yes, I'm hosting a show in the morning for three hours. <laughs> um, maybe I should keep a lid on things. So I, I did, I did, I did. But it was, it was a great night. And um, have you met Sam? You know what? I've not. I've listened to him a lot on two, obviously. He's been on with Zoe a lot this past week. But he just he just um, radiates joy and he's just so pleasant and, and positive. I thought it was great when he said hi to his mum and his dad and his gran. Uh, we were at a bat mitzvah last night, actually, so we missed it. We got back just in time for the results, which was kind of, that's normally the worst bit. But in fact, last night, it was the best bit, wasn't it? <laughs> It was amazing having something to talk about. Uh, normally I'm sat there twiddling my thumbs during the results. So it was all good. Listen, enough about your vision. Let's talk about you, lady, you. Oh, yeah. uh, because I mentioned your memoir there, Until the Cows Came Home. That was a big success back in, was it 2018? I think it came out. So did you yes. always know you were going to write a novel after that? Well, I sort of hoped somebody had asked me, a little bit like a girl at the school dance, you know, a wallflower, like maybe if it does well, they'll ask me. So when they did, yeah, I was absolutely thrilled. And um, I, I sort of, I had the idea pretty quickly, really, that I, I wanted to bring together uh, some people, like throw them together. And I thought a pottery class would be the perfect place to do it. So off, off I set with a bit of an idea and just cracked on. And of course, because you didn't you host Great Pottery Throwdown? Was that you? No. Well, some say it, the first two series were the best uh, two series oh, when you did. I hosted. Okay, yeah, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> actually, nobody said that. But yeah, I did do the first couple of series, and it was and Kate Malone, who was one of the judges with me. She helped me a great deal with the book, and it was just lovely to use pottery because thrown is obviously what you do when you throw on the wheel. I wanted to make sure people knew it had a W in it. It wasn't thrown as in on your head, as in Philippa Gregory sort of territory. Um, and uh, I uh, yeah, so from that. 
that, I, I, I thought it's when people do pottery, when people are potters, they sort of lose themselves in the clay a little bit. And I thought it was a lovely place for people to come and to drop their guard because they're four women who don't know each other. And through pottery and through something that is discovered in the first couple of chapters, they're sort of brought together and support each other. And in terms of the writing, you, so you came up with these these four women and you put them in the situation. Did you then know what was going to happen or did you let the muse guide you through the story? Well, it's funny, isn't it? I know that you've interviewed, you write yourself and you've interviewed a lot of authors and it's sort of 50-50 where people either, they've planned it, you know, so that it looks like a cold case murder drama on telly where there's post-it notes and string everywhere on a big board or they let the characters tell them where to go next. And I did the latter um, and then realised that even though the story was there with the first draft, it was a bit like, the best analogy is, it's like I'd built a snowman, but I'd put the big ball on top, the little ball underneath, and there was a dog chewing the stick arms nearby sort of thing. So it, <laughs> it needed a bit of a rejiggle. So then I went to the old post-it notes and bits of string. So I did it sort of back to front. But it was interesting when I was writing, it did feel, I know this sounds mad, but it did feel like, the characters were telling me what to do next and telling me the, about themselves, you know. Suddenly, I'd, you know, a turn of phrase had come from Sheila or, you know, she'd won a modelling competition when she was younger and she still clung on to that a little bit. There was a vanity there and all these things sort of sprung up um, and uh, all these characters sort of came to life a bit, which sounds a bit mad, but that's what happened. And did you have that thing, which I had when I started writing, where you don't want, because you're kind of known, you know, people know, who say, they, they see your name on the front of the book and they know who you are. Did, were you trying very hard to keep yourself out of the book so people weren't going, oh, that, that's her, she did that, she said that? Well, this is, well, when I read yours, I said to you, didn't I, that I forgot it was you within a few pages, which is good. And that's sort of the thing that it'd be lovely if it can happen. But I don't know if it will, because I feel like there's quite a bit, well, there's definitely a bit of my mum in there, in Sheila. And, uh, you know, there's quite a lot of my mum, you know, in me. <laughs> so I think there's, there's certain sort of phrases and wordplay that might sound familiar. And it's set north of Manchester. And I do the audio book, but I do my best with my A-level theatre studies to sound like different characters when I do the audio book. But there's, there's certainly bits in there. There's a bit, you know, there's... Um, not a, there's a, a, one of the characters just feels quite all these women are sort of after something more and one of them um was is a frustrated artist and she got a degree but she's from working class background and never got to be able to have a career in art and this pottery class sort of reawakens all these feelings of sort of not quite reaching her goals and there's a little bit of me in there you know I didn't do art at school they wouldn't let me because I was doing theatre studies and there's a bit of that so I'm living through her a bit where she's following her ambition to have a career in the art world um you know there's another um you know becky's had terrible relationships so there might be you know i might have taken a little bit for her uh from me as well so and also i've cherry picked you know a bit of my sister i mean a lot of women in my life might read it and be like hang on a minute <laughs> <laughs> and are you finished with these women now or might they have another life in another book it's hard isn't it it's hard to say goodbye to them because i feel like i've molded them and shaped them and brought them to life like a little moth and um and now it'd be sad to say goodbye so I think in the next book we might have to bump into a couple of them because I kind of want to know what happens next they may just uh sort of uh, cross paths with new characters I think because I'd like to know 
you know, what happens with Sheila and if Jamila, who's my lawyer, if she gets what she most craves in life. And have you started book two already? Well, uh, I've been uh, I've been procrastinating a little bit. I've been singing procrastination to the tune of fascination <laughs> because uh, I'm you know I'm, I'm I'm very good at that. I've got I've got seedlings. I just need to you know get crack on with it. And I just figure now that this one now that Throne is is out and it's out there now I can lock myself. Uh, in a cupboard with some biscuits and really and really get on with the next one. And Sarah, you're in the world of books because obviously the memoir, but also you host Between the Covers, the book program on BBC Two. So what have other writers been like around you? They've been a bit sniffy or they've been very supportive. What have they been like? Well, the, we've had guests on. Uh, I don't get to meet the authors who we cover because we do a lovely little video of them. So we just have guests in the studio. And the authors who've been in the studio have been lovely. Richard Osman read the book for me and gave me a lovely quote. So I love him forever because he's obviously global record-breaking publishing smash hit. Um, but otherwise, there seems to be lots of support on Twitter. You know, people just want to get their books out and want support. So um, people people have been, have been lovely with me. <laughs> I mean, I've not met that many, really, so I'm just and perhaps I should just try and avoid them if possible. <laughs> I, I, say, I think they're very supportive. I always think like they're much nicer to me than I'd be to them if they told me they were going to start a new chat show. <laughs> yeah, you played. <laughs> Don't no, it's terrible. Don't do that. I tell you as well, Marianne Keys came on Morning Live when I was um hosting that sometimes pop up on that lovely show and she was fantastic and she was only in London for the day we film it up in uh, it's live from Manchester and she was hot footing it to London as was I afterwards and she was like get me if you get me a copy today I'll definitely read it she read it she did a lovely tweet so she's just fantastic so it does feel like yeah genuinely people are being really supportive but yeah I don't want them to try and launch a tea time radio show anytime soon I definitely discourage that <laughs> Yeah, back off, Marion. It's already she's on, she's on Radio Four already. So it's like, yes, that that's fine. Do a podcast, but no, now now, yeah, put a lid on it because she is she's hilarious. She's so good. I love her. Yeah, it's great that podcast, um, isn't it? With a uh, with a with a comedian. What's it called? But yeah, it's great. And um, now here's the thing. One of my favorite shows you've ever hosted. Is it coming back? The uh, is it called Love in the Countryside? Yes, love in the countryside. I don't know if it's... One day it might come back. Uh, the pandemic... Oh, it should come back. It's yeah. so... I loved that show. It was really lovely. And I think there's still a couple of the couples that are together and there's definitely a baby, I think, as well, floating about. Not literally. So it worked. <laughs> and I just loved embracing my inner Scylla. But whilst wearing wellies and being able to stroke little little calves it was amazing and it was it was really warmly received and it's still one of my most popular shows I think because it was just that thing you realize how what a lonely job that can be being a farmer and the chances of bumping into someone quite slim yes I mean it, it's very much a vocation and very much you know full-on to be to be with a farmer you've got to be married to the farm as well so it was really lovely to be able to hook people up um and yeah people people really really loved it be, look I'd love to do more it'd be fabulous to do more 
Anyway, we shouldn't be talking about a show you're not doing. Just because I like it. <laughs> but I did like to say. <laughs> and and what, what else are you not doing? <laughs> well, the girl Britain's show. top takeaways. You're, you, you, <laughs> you're still looking for Britain's top takeaway, though, aren't you? Yeah, so that continues. It started last week. It's on um, Monday to Thursday. Um, so it's on eight o'clock on BBC Two with Darren Harriet uh, is um, my sort of score master and sidekick. And we pitch all these different takeaways together. I mean, they, they admit takeaway. I mean, just because you know, just be hanging around all this incredible food. Um, so uh, it's uh, it's running each week, each night that it's on. It's a different uh, type of takeaway. So we've had uh, fish and chips already. We've had uh, food from the Indian subcontinent already. Uh, we've had beautiful birds. So it's a real kind of like people licking their TV screens kind of job because it just looks so incredible. I mean, uh, I had to I had to get home and just knock up a quick curry the other night before watching the Indian episode because I was like, I know what's going to happen. I'm going to get a big takeaway if not. So it's a lovely, lovely show and just celebrating. Obviously, in lockdown, takeaways became an event, you know, for us, definitely on a Saturday night. That's what we that was our treat of the week because we just couldn't leave the house. So it's really celebrating just how much we came to value takeaways and just the quality of food out there. So it continues all this week uh, at eight o'clock on, on BBC Two. Like I say, it's a great show. And when you say it, like, it looks great, because it's telly, are people actually just eating cold food, pretending, it, <laughs> pretending it's nice? <laughs> well, what's quite good is we've not, you know, you do hear about that where the food goes cold because you get all these lovely shots of it afterwards to put on the telly. But actually what we do, we box it up, bag it up and we whack it onto electric scooters and it is taken immediately to families all across Manchester. We obviously film it in Manchester. We don't scooter it up from London. <laughs> and they, all these families <laughs> try the food while it's piping hot, as you would do when you get a normal uh, delivery to your house. And also because we filmed it when it, there was still the pandemic raging a little bit, um, a lot of the cameras was, were sort of locked off and were just pointing at the families eating their food. So actually they just had to get the food and start eating it right away. There was no like, hang on a minute, put down that pizza slice. I just want to, you know, zoom in or get a different angle. They just got the food nice and hot. And that's how, and they're the judges, essentially, the family. So that's, you know, there's a little bit of shades of goggle box in there, shades of master chef in there. And the excitement of, you know, all these kitchens being in the same big sort of warehouse space, all cooking together in these pop-up kitchens. It's really, it's really exciting. It was great. It was great to be there. And of course, Nice to eat any leftovers that were knocking about. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, I was literally like good. a dog. Yeah, I was like, I was doing like begging dog eyes uh, hanging around all these pop up <laughs> kitchens. They had to like toss me a sausage so that, you know, and then I was off. <laughs> That's Monday to Thursday on BBC Two. And let's just tell everyone again, your first novel, your debut novel, Throne, is out in hardback now. Uh, thank you so much, Sarah Cox, for joining us on the radio. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Treat yourself to a takeaway. Go on, do, do, do. Bye. Thank you. Lovely to chat to you, Graham. Bye. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio. All right, it's time to meet my second guest of this very nice day. Uh, she hosts the podcast How to Fail, currently in its 13th season, a huge success, an award-winning journalist, but she's here today as a novelist. Her fifth novel uh, came out in hardback last year. It's now out in paperback. It's called Magpie. She's called Elizabeth Day. Hello, Elizabeth. Hello, Graham. How's Turin? 
Jorin, uh, it's very, sh- it's, it's sunny. I, I say that I'm peering through a crack in the curtains, which I've pulled to make this very echoey room a little more like a radio studio. So I'm just peering into a car park and it looks very sunny and nice. Yeah. Well, lovely. Uh, we watching last night and cheering. I watched the whole thing and I was screaming with joy at the TV. It, it was akin to Emma Raducanu winning the American Open. It was amazing. <laughs> I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it was it was a special night. So uh, let's talk about Magpie. Magpie is one of those books. It's very hard to talk about because I feel like any question I have, you'll go, "Don't ask me that. It's a spoiler." So uh, what? <laughs> there are so many twists and turns in it. So what are you what are you comfortable telling us about uh, Magpie? I know I've made it very very difficult for any interviewer and also myself actually. So um, the pitch that I've worked out is Magpie opens with a woman called Marissa. She's in her late 20s. She's been through all the dispiriting online dating and she finally seems to have found a man who ticks every one of her boxes. He's called Jake. Um, They move in together quite quickly and they decide to start trying for a family together quite quickly, at which point the reader might think, oh, that's all a bit rapid. Uh, I hope she's okay." And then it turns out that Jake's job isn't going that well. So they have to take in a lodger to help make ends meet. And they take in a lodger called Kate. And Kate seems to take an obsessive and somewhat sinister interest in the private lives of Marissa and Jake and she also seems to know Jake quite well and Marissa becomes very very worried about this and then there's a big twist and it's sort of about what happens next but the themes that I explore within that are themes of fertility what happens when things don't go according to plan when you strive for the quote unquote perfect life but actually the rug is pulled from under you and also themes of class and obsession and jealousy and mental health, all of all of the riveting stuff. So that's Magpie. <laughs> and what was it like when you come to kind of plan something? Because it's a thriller. It's a kind of a psychological thriller. It's a page turn. It's got twists and turns. And yet some of these things are really serious that your readers will be going through. Women struggling with, uh, with fertility and some of the options that are explored in this book. Do you have to deal with those things really carefully because obviously you don't want to upset people. Absolutely and I'm not sure that I could have written this book had I not gone through a fertility journey myself and it was a deliberate decision to write about how painful that can be in a form that was accessible for the everyday reader. So that idea of fusing, as you say, very serious issues, but making it accessible by writing something that is compelling to read was very, very important to me. Because when I was going through the early days of IVF treatment, unsuccessfully, I should add, I really wanted to read my experience reflected to me because novels are how I make sense of the world. And for me, I couldn't find anything out there that wasn't accurate representation that made me feel seen so I really wanted to do that for anyone going through it but I also wanted to make it a really good read aside from that but I was very very careful in how I wrote about all of those issues and in terms of the mental health storyline that's something that I researched very carefully and I'm, I'm lucky in that respect in that my father is a retired surgeon so I was able to ask him for prescription details and things like that and any errors are entirely my own. That's so handy, isn't so it? So helpful. I know. I, all I need now is a police officer in the family, and then I'm covered from a thriller perspective. Um, and Magpie, I'm right in thinking that this is your fifth novel. 
Yes, it is. It's my fifth novel and my seventh book. So I've done two non-fiction books about failure as well. And in terms of your novels, the more you write, does it become easier or harder? Particularly because you've had some success, do you feel kind of like pressure? You kind of think, oh, damn, the last one sold like hotcakes and it won awards. Um, you know, what, what, what's coming up now? I'm really interested to hear what you think about this as a novelist yourself. I think... Harder. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, um, I tend to feel that every story arrives on its own terms. And so I try to think of each book very separately without the overhang of what the book before has done. But I was very aware with Magpie, my previous novel, The Party, had a thriller-like element to it. And I was aware that a lot of readers had really responded to that. And so I knew that I needed to put a bit of that in. But uh, does it get any easier? It only gets easier in the respect that you know when you have those days where you think, I am the worst writer and the worst person in the world <laughs> and everyone hates me and what am I saying and these sentences are absolute rubbish, you know that it's part of the process. So in that respect, like it still happens, but I know that I'm going to get through it. So that's the only respect in which I think it gets a bit easier. You're ringing every bell in my head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, how to Fail. We've got to talk about How to Fail. So did it begin as your first book or did the first book come out of the podcast? The book came out of the podcast. And thank you for asking because so many people get it the wrong way around. And it shouldn't irritate me, but it does slightly because it definitely started as an audio format. And obviously you've been a former guest on How to Fail, Graham, one of our most popular I ever. I was, yes. yes. Um, and it came, the <laughs> idea for the podcast came out of failures in my own life. So my 30s were a decade of real and intense transition for me where I got married to the wrong person. Then I got divorced. I started this fertility journey that I've mentioned. Um, then another long-term relationship ended. And I just found myself three weeks before my 39th birthday, single, looking down what felt like the barrel of my 40s, feeling like uh, life was not what I'd planned it to be. And I wanted to start having conversations with other people about what they learned from failure and how they cope with it. And that's how I started it. And then it became, ironically, one of the most successful things I've ever done. And I launched in July 2018. And it's just been an amazing privilege for me, actually, to have all of these conversations, these vulnerable, intimate conversations with, with people about what failure has meant to them. And, I mean... It is endlessly fascinating because, you know, I listen to it and it, it, it is endlessly fascinating. But as the host, are you surprised that it's ended up with the legs that it's had, that it's had, that, that actually there is so much to failure that you can talk about it endlessly? Yes, I have been surprised. But one of the things that I've learned through doing it is that, first of all, when you take the chance to be vulnerable and to say, yeah, I got this wrong or I made a mistake or life didn't go according to plan, that is the source, I believe, of all true human connection. And the other thing that I've realised as a result of that is that sometimes when you feel a very personal level of shame or worry about something you don't want to admit actually when you open up about that you discover it has much more universal resonance than you could ever have imagined so uh, those two things I think have meant that other people were yearning to have these conversations too you know my background is in Sunday newspaper journalism and I got really sick of doing interviews with celebrities about 
all the fantastic things that they were doing and all the things that they wanted to promote and all the red carpet stuff and the glitz and glamour because I always think the real test of a person is how they respond to failure because just because you fail doesn't mean you're a failure. Actually, the true test of your character is in how you respond to it. So it's just been an amazing thing for me and I've got to meet some of my heroes, you know, Graham Norton, Gloria Steinem, ah, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, <laughs> Daisy Edgar-Jones, like all these wonderful people come on my podcast and they choose to speak about three times in their life that they've failed and it's really I don't know I like to think that it's a reassuring listen to know that even people who seem to have it all things have gone wrong for them too and I'm interested from an interviewer's point of view doing those these long sort of quite emotionally charged conversations sometimes were they easier were they better it face to face or did they gain something from lockdown and actually the anonymity of just talking into the ether such a great question. I was really worried when we went into lockdown that we would no longer be able to do face-to-face interviews because you're right that I often travel across quite painful territory with my guests and it helps to have eye contact with them and to be giving them a reassuring smile here and there. But actually what I found is that when we went to audio only, you're right, it opened up this very intimate space where the other person didn't even have to get out of their pyjamas if they didn't want to. And because I wasn't looking at them, I actually think that it became like a sort of confessional where someone felt secure saying what they needed to say. So actually it's opened up a whole other level, I think, of trust and intimacy. And it also means that I can do interviews in different time zones with people who were abroad, whereas before it always relied on them coming to my house or me going to theirs. So it's actually been really good for the podcast. And I'm sure many of your listeners will relate to this. When lockdown happened, one of the only things that I could do to keep myself distracted, to keep being able to make sense of the world was to throw myself into work. And the podcast, recording the podcast really helped me through those two very tricky years. So I'm very grateful to it as well. You know, having things to do. Uh, How to Fail is available wherever you get your podcasts. And Magpie, Elizabeth Day's latest novel, is out now in paperback. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Take care. Thank you, Graham. Take care. Bye. Right now, in this day, it is time to brighten someone's day with the Waitrose Checkout Challenge. And we've got some callers on the line. Uh, Up first is Tracy. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Graham. How are you? I'm really, really, really well. Uh, Where are you? Um, I'm calling from Cambridge today, busy at work. Well, not that busy at the moment, obviously. (laughs) No, no, clearly, clearly not. (laughs) What do you do? You're not driving a bus or anything? No, no, no. I work in the housekeeping department at one of the um, colleges at St. Catherine's College. So, um, yeah, busy, busy here this morning, but just taking 10 minutes to dive in and uh, take part in your competition. Right, I'll try to keep you on the line as long as possible. Please. So you don't have to go back to work. <laughs> I'm busy on the radio. I can't, I can't. <laughs> All right, Tracy, you hang on there. We'll find out who you're playing against. It's uh, somebody called Carrie. Hi, Carrie. Hi, Graham. It, it is Carrie, not Carrie, right? It's Carrie, yeah. It's a funny spelling. It's a Welsh spelling. <laughs> oh, right. And are you in Wales? No, no, I'm in West Tinnock in Somerset. Oh, right. And uh, what do you do there? Um, I, I'm a scientist for Wessex Water. I look after local sewage work. Oh, dear. 
Tracy's rolling her eyes now. She's going, I'm playing a scientist. <laughs> <laughs> How did this happen? <laughs> Curse ye gods, they pitched me against a scientist in Somerset. <laughs> or, but well, listen, this is, this is domestic science. It is the, the art of shopping. So uh, I'm, okay. I'm sure you'll be fine. And, and have you been living in Somerset for a long time? Yeah, all my life. I was born here. I went off to university in Plymouth and then moved back. Yeah, it's a lovely okay. part of the world. To, to be a scientist. Okay, fine. Okay. Uh, all right, <laughs> Tracy and Carrie, imagine I'm wearing a nylon tabard now as I explain the rules of the game. I'm going to be listing items from the Essential Waitrose range as I put them through the checkout like this. There you go. Uh, all you need to be thinking about is how much each item cost as I go. So you add them up in your head as I list them off. And when you think I get to the total value of £20, okay, when you think the running total is £20, you need to shout out your name. That's your own name. Okay, shout that out. And once, uh, once somebody shouts out their name, the game doesn't stop. We keep going until the second player decides that they've got £20, okay? So it's really about being confident and holding your nerve. Whoever is closest to £20 total will be the winner of the checkout challenge and will win a £150 Waitrose voucher. How nice is that? All right, let's play the game. Pack of four tuna chunks in spring water. Mountain blend ground coffee, 227 grams. Pack of ten frozen codfish fingers. One kilo of red onions. Two pints semi-skimmed milk. What am I cooking? Twelve rashers of unsmoked bacon. 250 grams of unsalted butter. One kilo of British baby potatoes. Pack of eight pork sausages. Tracy. Who's that? Tracy. Okay. It was me, Graham. <laughs> okay, Tracy. It was Tracy. Yes, it was, yes. Yes. Okay. Okay, so Carrie's still playing. Uh, 250 milliliters olive oil. 350 grams mature British cheddar. Anti-back aloe vera hand wash. 250 milliliters of it. Carrie. Six free-range eggs. Oh, Carrie's gone. Okay, six free-range. I thought maybe the line... Yeah, I, thought, I thought maybe the phone line had gone. I'm just reading out <laughs> groceries to the end of the show, waiting for Carrie to shout out. I thought, I'm going to run out of my list quite soon. Uh, okay, someone... Someone will reveal the winner. I think I know who won. Uh, someone to whisper in my ear. Ooh. Oh. Okay. Uh, I can reveal, ladies and gentlemen, that the winner of the Waitrose Checkout Challenge uh, with £21.95 is... Carrie, the scientist what did it. Yes, congratulations well done, to Carrie. Carrie. Oh, thank you, Tracy. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Tracy. Is there anyone you'd like to say hello to on the show while you're here? Um, 
Um, yes, I'd love to just say hello to my girls, Becky and Jenny, and to everybody at St. Catherine's College, particularly those that are working today. Now, just after I hang on, just keep talking on the phone. Uh, pretend you're still on the radio. Uh, you know, you'll be fine. Uh, you can keep this going till lunchtime easily, Tracy. Yes, uh, I will do. <laughs> that, that's my plan. <laughs> yeah, then you can get back to work. All right, Tracy, thank you very much. Uh, Carrie, Thanks congratulations so on winning that £150 voucher. Oh, uh, anyone you you'd like much. to say hello to? Um, I'd just like to say hello to my boyfriend, Jay, my sons, Ben and George, my dad, Eric, my brother, Dave, my lovely nieces, and anyone who knows me. Brilliant. Listen, congratulations, Carrie. Uh, shop wisely. You, you're obviously a canny shopper. You know what you're <laughs> doing. Thank you so much for joining me on the Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. Don't forget to click that subscribe button to hear a new episode every Monday morning. Chat soon. The Graham Norton Radio Show with Waitrose. You can taste when it's Waitrose. Virgin Radio.